Yeah, well done for, for making it out uh, this morning. Uh, for those who are joining us uh, online, uh, wherever you're from, uh, I can assure you today is, is a fairly cold morning. So the guys who are here, extra committed, extra brownie points. Um, Karibu Tena again if you're joining us for the first time or just coming uh, into the series. And today is the last message in what's been a four-part series. And as, you know, the date for elections has been drawing closer, I've been feeling more and more the weight um, of the responsibility. I, I feel like I'm, I'm carrying uh, Kenya on my shoulders uh, in this last message on politics. Uh, but when we kicked it off uh, a few weeks ago, we started by asking the question, where is God in our politics? And uh, the answer that we gave was that, no, God is right here overseeing it. And uh, one picture that I love is from the book of Joshua in chapter 5, as the Israelites are coming towards the city of Jericho. And it says that they saw a man, or Joshua saw a man, and his sword was drawn. And Joshua, being kind of the brave guy, or I think he's got many other people behind him, he asks this man, are you for us or against us? And the man replied, neither. I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and I have come. And Joshua bowed before him and said, what, what is the Lord saying? And he said to him, take off your shoes, for where you're standing is holy ground. And I believe that as we're approaching this issue of politics, there's, there's a lot of fear around what's, and, and uncertainty. What's, what's going to happen? And uh, those who follow Christ are praying and saying, God, would you intervene? Would you do uh, a work on our behalf? And I think for us, we should just have that confidence that God is there. Not only is he there, but he is working out his purposes. He's not kind of having a, a detour to say, let me handle this election situation in Kenya. No, God is working out his purposes all across planet Earth. The question is not whether God is for us. The question is whether we are for God in his purposes. In the next week, we kind of looked at how do we relate with politics in a fallen world? And what we mean when we say a world that has fallen is that it's a world where things are out of sync. Things are out of joint. Things are not going as they were meant to. We looked at whether God is, is kind of just, just looking over and has left us in this mess. But we saw that, no, actually, God hasn't left us in the mess, but actually entered into the human story through the person of his son, Jesus. And has taken all authority in heaven and on earth. We spoke of how the gospel is not just a religious message where you kind of think, hey, I've got my religion here, it's Christianity, then I've got my, my sexuality here, then I've got my work, my business, uh, then I've got uh, things to do with my leisure. Actually, as Hudson Taylor said, either Christ is Lord of all, 
or not Lord at all. The good news is Christ indeed is Lord of all. And then last week we heard about the relationship between states, government, and believers and the church. And we, we saw that actually the state and government have got delegated authority to bring order and justice that has come from God. And so we, we honor and we respect the government. But we, we also hold them accountable because of their God-given mandate. We hold them to account to rule and govern in a way that brings justice. And thank you to those who responded to the survey. Uh, your answers were really helpful as I thought about how we can frame this last message. So this week, my aim is to answer the question, what then shall we do? Having understood these things, how do we respond practically? Not only on the 9th of August when those of us who will be in the polling stations meet at the ballot, not only for Kenyans, but also for non-Kenyans, for, for us who say we follow Christ, those who bear his name. How shall we relate to politics? And so if you have your Bible, please would you turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. We'll be looking at chapter 29. And if you've been following through the series, you'll remember that in the first week, we started by reading from the book of Habakkuk. And in it, God was saying to the Jews that he was going to send the Babylonians. And now this was at a time when, when that was unexpected. But it was something that was dreadful and fearful. In the second week, we, we spoke about Daniel. And Daniel was actually taken as captive in 605 BC by these very Babylonians. And now as we're getting into this story, the Babylonians have come and taken another tranche of captives. And this was in 597 BC. And they've taken them into exile. And so Jeremiah is writing a letter to these exiles. I'm going to read firstly just from verse 1 to 3. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests the prophets, and all the people who Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian king at the time. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand, by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And so, as we think of how do we engage with politics, how, how are we going to work these things out practically? The first thing we need to remember and realize is that we are not finally home in this life. In fact, the Bible describes followers of Christ as being in exile in the world. In other words, you are a resident alien. Now, obviously, we all know that we live and we die. So to some extent, whether you are a follower of Christ or not, 
You have to wrestle and grapple with the meaning of life. What is the purpose and the meaning of the time that you have on this earth? Is it just a result of random occurrences, biological? What is it all about? And the good news for us who follow Christ is that we've got a message that gives meaning and purpose, not just in this life, but for eternity. We are resident aliens. And Jeremiah addresses his letter to exiles. And you might think, hey, exile kind of sounds like a a strange word. Maybe if you're here and you're fleeing from your country, you're fleeing from somewhere, you might relate with that. But you say, no, I'm, I'm Kenyan, I'm at home. How can I be an exile? Yet we'll see shortly that whether you are Kenyan or non-Kenyan, whether you are a citizen or non-citizen of this nation, if you are a believer, you have another home, a more enduring and primary citizenship, which is the kingdom of heaven. And believers are looking and longing for that far country, for that city that comes from heaven whose builder and architect is God. Listen to what Peter says in the book of First Peter as he, as he opens his letter. He's, he's talking to believers who've been scattered to many Roman provinces. And he says to them, hey, I greet you, exiles of the dispersion. And that word dispersion is diaspora or diaspora as we say it now. And in another translation it says, those temporary residing, temporarily residing abroad. And he's not talking about you're abroad from Jerusalem, but he's saying you're abroad from your final home. And then he goes on to say in 1 Peter 2 verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul. And the key phrase there is, is foreigners and exiles. In other versions, it's translated as temporary residents and foreigners, strangers and pilgrims, foreigners, aliens and strangers, strangers and refugees in this world. And in that phrase, Peter is using two different Greek words. And one of the Greek words is more related to being like a, a, perm- a permanent resident. And if you've lived in another country, you know that when you become a permanent resident, you've got the right to stay in that country indefinitely, but you you don't have the full rights of being a citizen or being a native. You can't vote. You can't participate in elections. And then the other word he uses is similar, but here you are a temporary resident. And for us... Coming from Zimbabwe and and being here, you know, we have to get our visas renewed. And and this is what it's like. There's a a time limit to your residency. And I I remember the first time I I heard, you know, that word alien card. I I just thought, man, I I don't want to be referred to as an alien. It sounds like I'm coming out of men in black or something. I, I don't want to be a foreigner. And so while these two words kind of leave us scratching our heads, wondering, so are we, are we permanent? Are we, are we temporary? What's clear is that we are aliens, strangers, foreigners, refugees. That this world is not our native home. This 
is not our ultimate citizenship. And what it does, I think firstly, is that it frees us from having ultimate investment in this life or in this world. We're not ultimately invested in today's politics. And so we're not carrying other people's agendas or coming with, with a tribal chip on our shoulder. It's like, you know what, this is what they did to us. Oginga and Jomo, this is what happened. I've got a tribal chip on my shoulder. This is who we are as Luyos. This is who we are as Kikuyus. Or, or this is who we are as this economic class. But this is not your ultimate citizenship. You, you don't represent a, a particular political interest group. Because you have a new primary identity in Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you're an alien and a stranger here. And the exhortation that Peter gives to them is that keep away from fleshly desires. And what he's saying is that, hey, don't just live instinctively. Don't just fulfill those desires that you have in and of yourself and some that are awakened through nurture of your culture and of your history. Don't just respond to situations. Don't just respond even to the political arena just, just instinctively and culturally because you're an alien and a stranger. And so, though instinctively, we, we might want to huddle in, in the safety of, of our ethnic background, Peter says, no, that's, that's instinctive. That's, that's not who you are. We, we, we might want to huddle around an ideology and, and label left-wing or, or socialist and, and right-wing nationalist. We, we might want to huddle around, hey, this is my philosophy, big government, small government. We, we might want to coalesce around bottom-up, top-down economics. We, we, we might want to go Republican, Democrat, hustler, dynasty, or, or gender. Let, let's make our issue gender, or class, or, or economic status. And Peter says, no. Wage war. Fight to respond in a way that reflects who you are in Christ. And for some of you, this will challenge you even as you approach 9th of August. How have you made the decision of who you will vote for? Is it based on your primary identity in Christ? Or, or is it based on, on some history, something about your ethnicity? Friends, the kingdom is where our primary citizenship lies. And so it is where we are ultimately invested. Secondly, it means that our ultimate hope is not in the politicians or the government. For some, you might be saying, hey, if, if this guy lands in power, we are finished. 
My, my hope is that so-and-so should not govern this land. But our ultimate hope is not in politicians or government. Because our real citizenship comes with a ruler and a government that is perfect, that is founded on righteousness, justice, that, that brings peace and shalom. That is where our ultimate hope in politics and government lies. When Isaiah spoke about the coming of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, he, talks, he says, unto us, a child is born, a son is given, prince of peace, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Earthly politicians seem not to mind sending people to, to die on their behalf, whether as soldiers or in political unrest. But our ultimate governor and ruler himself laid his life down on behalf of his people. And we sing a song and say, who is this king? His name is Jesus. Won't you put your hope in that ultimate government of Christ? Finally, it also prevents us from trying to set up a Christian kingdom or state in this life. Say, hey, no, the first, the, the first sentence of our constitution says that God is supreme. We are a Christian state. But Peter says, no. You are resident alien. You are citizens of another land. See, in, in times of history, people have, have, have tried to, to set up these Christian states. And all that has ended up is a worldly state justified by the church and killings, and all sorts of injustices that rather than moving the gospel forward, have moved the gospel back. You see, because Jesus, his kingdom will not be imposed on anyone. It is something that is received by faith and by conscience. And so, in a sense, I've, I've kind of started by, by saying negatively how we're not to engage in politics. We're not to engage in, in, in our politics as though this is where we're ultimately invested. We're not to engage in our politics as though this is where our ultimate hope lies. And we're not to engage in our politics to try and set up a worldly Christian government. Instead, we're to engage in our politics as those who remember their resident aliens. So does this mean we, we, we don't care about what happens? We don't care about what happens on the 9th of August. I'm, I'm a resident alien. I've, I've, got a, I've got another ruler. Does it mean that we, we, we don't hope for any good in our politics? We, we don't hope for any Christian values 
and ethos to be seen in our politicians and in the way that we're governed? Does it mean we, we become passive and withdraw? Do I just fold my hands and say, hey, I don't care what, what happens now in Kenya. I'm waiting for that city that comes from above whose builder and architect is God. And all these are, are very important questions, whether you are local or non-Kenyan. So I want us to return to our passage in Jeremiah and get into his letter and see how he may help us to answer these questions. This is what Jeremiah said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, as I had mentioned earlier, Peter had these two Greek words that seemed to be in tension. Are we permanent residents or are we just temporary resident aliens? And the answer is not either or, but both and. And so as we, as we look at what Jeremiah says to these exiles, I want to bring my second point, which is this. Whilst we're not ultimately invested in the here and now, we need to be invested in the here and now. Whilst you're not ultimately invested in the politics of today, you need to be invested in the politics of today. And to understand what Jeremiah is saying here, you'd have to go back uh, to Jeremiah 28, where there's a guy called Hananiah who is prophesying back in Jerusalem and saying, hey guys, in two years' time, all of this will be finished. And the guys who've been sent to exile will be back in Jerusalem. Everything will be just as it was before. Everything is going to be all right. Sounds like a great prophecy, right? Except that it's totally false. And so God warns the exiles to say, hey, don't listen to those guys who are saying, I've dreamt a dream or I've prophesied and said, hey, we're going to have peace. Everything is going to be great. 
In fact, scripture time and again warns us that false prophets and false teachers will arise who will tell people exactly what they want to hear. The Bible talks of people having itching ears that want to be scratched. That, that you've got preachers and prophets and teachers who want to scratch exactly where your itch is. And in Jeremiah's time, the itch was, hey, we want to be back in Jerusalem. And so that's what the prophets were prophesying. In our day, people want to hear, hey, you're going to be rich. Like, wow, that's, that's the prophetic word I want to hear. I'm going to be a billionaire. People want to hear, hey, you won't have any problems in your life. Everything is sorted. The word of the Lord has come and said, you know what? Those relationship problems you've been having, this time next year, you're going to be married. The, the, the economy is going to be great. Unemployment will come from 30% to zero. And at that time, people are jumping, coming and putting money at the front. Like, I'm sowing into that word. Businesses are going to thrive. And such prophets and teachers say nothing about losing your life to find it. They say nothing about a seed falling to the ground and dying that it may be fruitful. They say nothing of all the tribulations that Jesus and his followers went through and promised that we would go through. For it is through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom. And so this morning, just as an aside for free, I want to humbly caution against such false promises and hopes of earthly comfort, luxury, and security, which rather than helping you become more God, Christ, and kingdom-centered, turn you to become ungodly, worldly, and self-centered, and by extension, useless in the world as salt and light. So you can imagine when the exiles received Hananiah's message and all these prophets, it was like the penguins of Madagascar, high fives all around, man. Hey, don't unpack your bags. Let, let, let's just live out of our suitcases. We'll be back home in two years' time. Guys, just milk the cows. We'll be home in time for chai in the evening. And if you've played Monopoly, you know how it is in the game. When one of the players lands on the jail square, and then they quickly exclaim, hey guys, I'm, I'm just visiting. Or they're actually sent to jail, but they theatrically pull that get out of jail free card and say, I'm playing on my next round. And this is how the Jews felt. Man, we, we've got our get out of Babylon quickly free card. No need to get mixed up in Babylonian affairs. We are just temporary residents here. But Jeremiah picks the short straw. And God says, no, you need to burst these guys' bubble. 
And so in verse 10, he's writing to say, hey guys, sorry, actually, it's not going to be two years. It's going to be more like 70 years. You could hear a pin drop. This was not the message that they wanted to hear. Actually, another guy wrote back to Jerusalem to say, hey, can you please arrest Jeremiah and stop him saying these things? So from verse 3 to 6, God is essentially saying to these guys, you need to invest in Babylon. Unpack your bags, roll up your tents, build houses. Join the homeowners association. Be engaged in the estate where you are as someone who's going to live there for a very long time. Someone who's going to raise their kids there and see their grandkids there. Get married. Don't put your marriage plans on hold and say, we're going to have our ceremony back in Jerusalem. No, no, no. Get married. This is not a word to William and Catherine. <laughs> Saying plants, vineyards. So don't just say, oh, no, no, we just need mboga. No, plants, trees, vineyards. Because you have enough time to eat from them. You, you need to invest in the economy. Start, start businesses. Get a job. Do something that creates jobs for others. Be fruitful in that place where I've sent you. Be engaged in the fullness of social life. Have kids who will have Babylonian friends who will attend Babylonian school because you're there for the long haul. Don't live passively waiting for something to happen. Make things happen. If you see all the verbs that Jeremiah uses, build, live, seek, plant, I want you to be doing stuff. And then most strikingly, if, if you remember the cruelty, the, the godlessness, the idolatry of the Babylonians, just even from casual reading, God says to them, I want you to actively look, care for, work hard for the welfare of Babylon. And the word that's used there is the word shalom. And God is saying, I, I want you to work for the peace, the wholeness, the fulfillment of that city. To which the Jews would reply, hey, these guys are, they're idolaters. These guys are so cruel. These guys are corrupt. These guys are, are dishonest. Surely we should be praying for the judgment of Babylon. But God says, no, I want you to work for, care for, and pray for their welfare. You see, because God will not allow them to live uninvested, careless lives in Babylon. Neither will he allow us to live uninvested, careless lives wherever we find ourselves. 
And so if you are in Nairobi today, if you are in Kenya today, God will not allow you to live a careless, uninvested life in this city and in this nation. And you're saying, okay, how do we do that? Does Scripture give us any handles, any examples? Well, during that time and after that, we've got several examples, such as Daniel. These were Jews who were both ultimately invested in God's purposes and kingdom as was represented in their day in the kingdom of Israel, but were also fully invested in Babylon or Persia. Daniel was a senior, civil, uh, a senior civil, civil servant, or we might call him a technocrat. He had the dubious title at one point of being head of the wise men, sorcerers, and, and magi, from which we get the word magicians. He was kind of Nebuchadnezzar's chief sorcerer and magician and wise man. He served in various Babylonian governments and even served in the Medo-Persian government. And Darius the Mede, we see it in Daniel 6 saying, he wants to make him the head of the government, kind of like the prime minister. And concerning his work, this is what scripture says. It says that when, when people try to find something to accuse Daniel about his work, they couldn't because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. You can think of Mordecai, who was raising Esther in the Persian Empire and allowed her to enter into, I don't know whether we call it a, a beauty pageant. I think in our days we'd call it grooming and going on to kind of like sex slavery. That's how bad it was. And Esther would spend one night with this king and enter into his harem or be elevated to queen. And I can assure you, they were not playing chess during that night. And Mordecai also worked in the king's service and at some point saved his life. I don't know whether he was kind of, you know, What's it, national security service type policeman or whatever? Rather than saying, you know what, it's good for this king to die, I don't care about Medo Persia. No, he saved the king's life and was later raised to be a senior, a senior civil servant. We can think of Nehemiah, who was the king's. The Persian kings trusted cupbearer. And, and this just wasn't like a menial job of, you know, I'll pour your wine. This is kind of like, uh, if anything is going to get to the king, it has to get through me. And later on, he, he was governor of Judah. He, he wasn't a, a junior guy. He was trusted by this pagan king. He was trustworthy. Not only was he trustworthy, he was capable. He, he went and oversaw the rebuilding of the walls. He, he looked into law and legislation. And he, he looked into their worship. And this is what it meant for them 
to build houses, live in the city, get married, continue to flourish, and also look and care for the welfare of the city where God had placed them. And when we look and think of Christians throughout history who've, who've had an incredible impact, whether I can think of Frederick Douglass, who was a slave who, who got freed and began to campaign for the abolition of slavery and even served in government. And when I think of William Wilberforce, who, after kind of coming to faith, thought, I, I'm, I'm going to serve in the church. But actually, God called him to serve in parliament. And he campaigned for decades for the abolition of slavery. Think of Desmond Tutu, the South African Anglican bishop who, for years, campaigned against apartheid. And when South Africa got its independence, led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I'm not sure if there's been anything more beautiful for, for truth, justice, and reconciliation in the midst of such darkness. Think of Dennis Mukwege, this gynecologist from the DRC, who a few years ago got the Nobel Peace Prize for his work among women who had been brutally raped in the DRC war and his campaign against rape being used as a weapon of war. All these are people who have been moved by their faith to engage in the things of their community. And as I close, I just want to look much more closely at one more person. His name was Anthony Ashley Cooper. He's otherwise known as, as Lord Shaftesbury. He lived in the 19th century. And his parents were distant. But there was one particular lady who served within their family as kind of like a maid or a house help who was a Christian and, and taught him about Christianity and, and showed him love. And he himself became a Christian. And then he, he joined parliament. He, he refused to be appointed as a lord, even though he had the opportunity. He said, no, I want to work among the people. And in the early, in the, in the early 1830s, there was growing unrest about the treatment of workers, particularly children, in mills and factories. You'd have kids as young as four and five working 14, 15, 16 hours per day. And Shaftesbury's interest in this began after reading a report about child labor which left him astonished and disgusted. He later said he took up the cause after meditation and prayer. By 1833, he was leading the factory reform movement in Parliament, pushing to have the working day in textile mills cut to 10 hours for women and children. Later on, Shaftesbury's Minds Act of 1842 banned all women, girls, and boys under 10 from working underground. 
and the conditions were so bad that they used to work in that they, they worked almost naked and sexual abuse was prevalent. Mentally ill people had an incredibly inhumane treatment. They would have straight jackets, they would be chained, they would be whipped. And Shaftesbury started visiting these asylums and just seeing how people who were mentally ill were being treated. And he campaigned and in 1845 he pushed through legislation which treated the mentally ill as people needing care not as social outcasts. He also campaigned against the use of small boys as chimney sweeps. So they would have the chimneys and these little boys who could fit in would have to go in and clean. And you can imagine the diseases that have. Sometimes if the guys felt they were too slow, they would put a fire in the chimney. And the, often it happened that they would get burnt within that chimney. He visited London slums and became more convinced that the working classes needed better homes and their children needed schooling. For nearly 40 years, Shaftesbury chaired the Ragged Schools Union, which provided free education for working class and destitute children. Over his time and post, it is estimated that the union helped about 300,000 children. Shaftesbury was also involved in legislation to rehabilitate young offenders. Now, the impact that Shaftesbury had on global politics is immeasurable. You, you can't wrap your mind around it. Now we are shocked that kids would be working. We talk about child labor. It's because of Shaftesbury. Now we, we talk about improving workers' conditions, rights of workers, in many ways. It's linked to Shaftesbury. We, we talk about public schools that, that give education. If we talk about free education uh, to primary or whatever it is, you trace it back to Shaftesbury. Just one Christ follower. And this is what he said. Christianity is not a state of opinion and speculation. Christianity is essentially practical. No one depend upon it, can persist from the beginning of his life to the end of it in a course of self-denial, in a course of virtue, in a course of prayer, unless he is drawing from the fountain of our Lord himself. Therefore, I say to you again, let your Christianity be practical. And as we think about, okay, how can I engage in politics? We, we see how these different men and women have, have engaged. It's by seeing what's going on in your society, by empathizing and sympathizing with those who are without shalom. It's by engaging and caring for the welfare of your city and your nation and using whatever position, wherever you are, to shine that light of what Christ has done in you. Whether your Shaftesbury's made and all you do is care for a little boy or whether you are a parliamentarian or prime minister. Let your Christianity be.
be practical. And as I close, I want to read over us the words of Jeremiah. And as I do that, I'll just invite the band to come back up. It would be easy for us to close on this exhortation and saying, yes, this is, we are going to do it. We're going to let our Christianity be practical. We're, we're going to be invested in the here and now, even though we know our ultimate investment is in the kingdom of God. We might take up all these causes, but actually, it's based not on what we ourselves can do for the city or for ourselves, but on what God says and promises to us. And so I just want to close by reading from Jeremiah 29, 11 to 14. Maybe we can just stand up together. I'll read from this scripture, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing a song together as we close the series. This is what Jeremiah went on to say. For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. What an incredible word to the city of Nairobi. What an incredible word to the nation of Kenya as you approach elections. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. When you call out to me and come to me in prayer, I will hear your prayers. When you seek me in prayer and worship, you will find me available to you. If you seek me with all your heart and soul, I will make myself available to you. And you might be here, you, you've never prayed in your life or you've prayed and wondered, does God listen? Does God hear? Does God care? This is his word. If you seek me with all your heart and soul, I'll make myself available to you, says the Lord. Finally, then I'll reverse your plight and will regather you from all the nations and all the places where I've exiled you, says the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I exiled you. And for us, we're not looking to be brought to a physical Israel or a physical Jerusalem. We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The, this place where we are will be renewed. And it says that it's the meek who will inherit the earth. Those who follow Christ will inherit the earth. And that God's promise for us is sure. As we look to live out our practical Christianity, you can be assured God knows the plans that he has for you. God answers your prayers. God is, is with you. He will strengthen you and uphold you with his righteous right hand. And God has preserved an inheritance for you. Nothing will be lost. And so, Lord, as we finish this series and look forward to the election and beyond that, as we ask ourselves, how do we live out this idea of politics and, and our faith in Christ. We thank you that our ultimate investment is in you and so it's secure. That our ultimate hope is in your government. That it will be completely established. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to live out this paradox where we're not ultimately invested but yet fully invested. 
in the place and in the city, in the context where you have placed us. Whether this is our native home or whether we come from another land, teach us and show us by your Spirit what it means. Lord, we, we've heard of, of men and women who've had incredible impact in the political realm. And we pray that you would do it in our day again in this nation. That you'd raise up men and women who would care for the lowliest of the low. Men and women who would break injustice. Men and women who would break the back of inequality and, and poverty. Not because that is their hope, but because they are in Christ's kingdom. We pray even over this election, that let it be at this time, O oh Lord God. Let it be in these days, Lord, when you do that, in this nation and in East Africa. We thank you that you are with us, that you are for us, but more than that, you, you call us to be engaged with you and to be for you. And even as I pray over the people who are listening now, Lord, I pray that you'd begin to stir in men and women's hearts, young and old, that you are here for a reason. Not only are you here for a reason, but God has placed his power inside of you. By faith, kingdoms can be overcome. By faith, wars can be won. By faith, life can be found from death. Would you believe in these promises? Would you believe in these truths that His plans for you right here in this city and in this nation are for good? Would you come, Holy Spirit, over your people and fulfill your promises? Amen.